Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Dr. Rebecca Heiss helps clients break through their deeply ingrained inclinations to self-sabotage. She joins me today to discuss her latest book, Instinct. Rewire your brain with science-backed solutions to increase productivity and achieve success. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, your host, and this is Motivational Mondays. I'm joined today by Dr. Rebecca Heiss, author of the book Instinct, which examines how people can grow and become more productive by letting go of their fears. So Rebecca, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Oh, thank you so much, Corey. I'm thrilled to be with you. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm happy that you're here as well because so many of these conversations help us grow and sort of move beyond our own boundaries that we put on ourselves in life. So let's just jump right in. So instinct is described as a tool that can help people craft a better life once they can get beyond self-imposed fears, quite honestly. So how did you arrive at that assessment to write this book? You nailed it right on the head when you started with our own boundaries that we put on ourselves, right? I'm a stress physiologist and evolutionary biologist. And what I've realized through my training through evolutionary biology is that unfortunately, we are stuck with lousy brains. Like, all of us. It's not your fault. It's just that our brains aren't built for the world that we live in. They're built for a world that was dangerous and sparse and scary because that was the world that our ancestors lived in, right? And our environment has changed really rapidly in the last 200,000 years. We've got technology and populations of 8 billion individuals. I mean, it's an incredible environment that we live in, but our brains haven't caught up to that. So these stories that we carry in our heads of being in a dangerous, sparse, scary space are holding us back from really living life fully. So that's sort of like we're pre-programmed, if you will. So we shouldn't really beat ourselves up if we have that instinct, right? I mean, I think so many of us are probably like feeling inadequate because, well, why can't I get beyond the fear? But there's something clinical going on potentially. Yeah, your brain is doing exactly what it should do, right? It's literally there protecting you. So this whole idea of having shame and guilt around our fear of rejection, well, that's good. If you get kicked out of the tribe, you die, right? Like, like, don't do it, don't do it. Or your fear of failure, you fail to bring home enough meat, you die. So these are really valid fears to our brains. The trick is getting out of that so we don't, you know, live our entire lives in fear and then wake up one day and go, oh my gosh, I have all these regrets. Yeah, that's one of my biggest fears. And I I sort of like made the decision that I have to look at the time I have now as the gift in which to try certain things. I don't want to be an old man going, you know, if I could just have one more day because you don't get that day. You don't get that extra time. You never do. And that's that's always what people regret the most, right? Is not taking the chance, not taking the leap. Yeah, we hear those stories a lot. So one of the key initiatives in the book, though, is to sort of help us rewire our brains, right? Reprogram ourselves and let go of that fear and the mental barrier. So can you give, I mean, I don't want to give the book away. I want people to, of course, buy the book. But can you give one example from your book on how we can begin to do that? Yeah, 
Yeah, I think one of my favorites is finding a clear common enemy. So your brain is naturally wired to see the other, to see people who look different, act different, behave differently, have different cultures, different concepts as the enemy, as the other. And actually, we do this to ourselves. We other ourselves, ironically. So creating a clear common enemy, if our brain is constantly seeking the negative, the dangerous, the scary, good. Let's give our brains that. Let's just update what that negative, scary thing is. So instead of it being the other person or that idea of failing or that idea of being rejected, let's create a concept like, I don't know, let's fear poverty. Let's fear something that is more powerfully a driver. So one of my favorite stories in this is, you know, talking to a guy who was fixing a door in in an emergency room and him saying, well, here at this place, you know, in this, in this hospital, we fight against patient pain. And I'm going, oh, well, of course. So him fixing that door, that door jarred patients as patients were pushed through. And so what he was doing in his head was fighting against patient pain. So he created this abstract enemy, which drove a purpose for his life. And that's so powerful, right? If we can use our biology to work with us rather than against us, now we can take our fears and kind of bust through them by fighting something more powerful. Yeah, I saw one of the analogies on your website that I think it referred to like a group of crows, (laughs) (laughs) right? A group of crows that, you know, by no means probably would be looked at as an animal that can take down a hawk, but a group of crows together have who've decided that the hawk is to come an enemy, the hawk better watch out, right? And, yeah. and I think what's important about that is in such a divisive time that we live in, I saw that as an analogy for humans. Like instead of us fighting each other, like you just said, why don't we collectively all come together and go, you know what? Poverty is a pretty horrible enemy. Let's fight fight and right? conquer that one disease. Maybe we could all come together with a certain, you know, vaccination. And um <laughs> And this is a little dicey to admit, but when coronavirus was first announced, when it first we first kind of realized, oh my gosh, this is a big issue, I thought, oh, here it is. Here's the thing that will unite humanity because we can all fight against it together. And there was a great opportunity there. Unfortunately, you know, it became politicized. We immediately went into our tribes. But that's the opportunity. You see it right there. And and pros have figured this out, right? When we cooperate, when we work together, we can drive off, you know, much more powerful enemies together. Yeah. Wow, that is a great analogy. And um, so be more like crows, people. Be more like the crows. (laughs) So you also have a platform called Fearless Theory. Mm -hmm. It's featuring something called the Fearless Accelerator, and it's a personal and professional leadership development tool for high-performing women around the globe. Now, before I ask you to share a little bit about that, I must say before we began today, I went to, I mean, I'm not a, a woman, but I still took that quiz before we began this morning. I was like, I got to do it. Are you going to reveal your results? (laughs) Yeah. You know what's funny about it is like, I was pretty neutral, like right in the middle of, I sort of feel like I'm validated, but I sort of know I could be doing better. I was quite down the middle, but the questions were really, really genuine questions that you have to be honest about before you can even really do a proper assessment. I imagine that Fearless Accelerator has a similar vibe. So tell me a little bit about the Fearless Accelerator. I appreciate you bringing up the quiz too. I mean, Almost all of my work is related to self-awareness, right? Because when we're self-aware, when we stop the blame, the shame, the guilt, we can become aware and realize, oh, this is just information. Now when I'm having this stress response because any number of things, I can say, wait a second, this isn't a tiger leaping at me. I can't fight this email. I can't flee from this email. I can just breathe through it. So so much of this work is around self-awareness. 
So thank you for bringing that up. Yes, yes. The accelerator is actually moves beyond that to recognize, you know, identity. Who are we? How do we show up outside of culture, outside of the norms, outside of the way we're supposed to behave? So it's it's very common. Um, I talk to a lot of female leaders and for them to wake up at age 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 and go, I don't even know how I like my eggs. I'll have them scramble, whatever you need, whatever you want, because we are, we're so trained to people, please. And that's true for men too, in a different way. So we talk through identity, who we are at our core is we work through stress and anxiety, recognizing that those emails aren't tigers. We can't do those traditional things that our brain wants to do. Right. We talk through fear of rejection and failure, imposter syndrome, which is huge affects somewhere between 70 and 88% of women, especially high achieving women, and is especially common for people of color. Because when you don't have those role models, when you don't see yourself in those positions, of course you feel like a fraud. Of course you feel like a fake. And then we talk through boundaries. How do you say no? Recognizing that when you're not saying no to somebody, you're probably saying no to yourself. Right? You're always saying no. So how do we begin to train our brains to recognize, actually, every confrontation isn't a huge fight. It's not a big blow up. We need to be able to set these boundaries to keep ourselves safe and sane in this fairly insane world. Yes, it's funny. That is one of the key questions from the quiz that I remember. Because I mean, there were quite a few questions, but when you just said that, that one stuck out to me is my ability to say no to people. And it's because I want to be a people pleaser and I want to say yes. And I know my bandwidth is already expanded and maxed out, but I'll go, yes, of course. Yes, yes. Because by nature, I want to please, right? right? And I think to your point, women are almost programmed by society, a very misogynistic society, might I add. I mean, it is what it is to be that person. The woman has to be the, you know, the nurturer and she's going to support the entire family. And then if she's in business, sometimes she's got to balance all those worlds where no one asks the man, well, how is your life going balancing being a dad and a businessman? No one, you know, so I totally understand that. And, you know, you're the third consecutive woman I've interviewed who that became part of the conversation. It's the water we swim in. So I always tell people, you never hear anybody saying, oh, working dads. Mm -hmm. Oh, are you a working dad? Yeah. Right. right, Yeah. It's not even a thing. (laughs) Not even a thing. And again, this is one of those things that I say, it's the water we swim in. The analogy that I always give is a David Foster Wallace story. We talks about these two young fish swimming along in the water and older fish come swimming by and kind of says, Hey boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a while longer. And finally one turns to the other is like, dude, what's water? (laughs) <laughs> right? Like you just, you don't know. You don't even know. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's these systems of, as you mentioned, you know, some misogyny of, of racism, of all of these, these systems that we're surrounded by, which is except we've never known any different. And it's kind of breaking out of the mold of our brains to say, well, wait a second, just because it's always been that way doesn't mean it can't be better for everyone. Yes. yes, So it's not a, yeah, it's, it's not a, well, I'll do better. And so that person will do worse or vice versa. It's a, no, no, no. All ships can rise on this tide. One of the important things that I think has come from the conversation that I've had with these women, the last one being a high powered attorney from Atlanta who has three businesses, four children, and she just did a really impressive TEDx talk touching on the difficulties of being an attorney and having to balance all that. But what we came up with was the idea that society, men in particular, have got to be more aware that women need that support. 
It's a yes and. Um, I don't want to leave men out of the conversation either because mm-hmm. I think so frequently there's an expectation, well, you can just handle it all because you're a man. And I like to reference back to growing up. I grew up on Disney movies. I don't know about you. So <laughs> yeah, I learned, of course. Right? Yeah. I learned from a young age that if you're an old woman, you're evil. You're a witch, <laughs> right? And there's a biological story there. <laughs> right, right, yeah. You're not even valuable if you're a man unless you're a prince. Mm. Right. You're not even a part of the Disney movie. So you've got to get out there and earn your money and and develop your status. And so there's balances on both sides that I think need to be addressed at a much deeper level. Obviously, as a woman, I am more familiar with some of the needs that females have. And so that's why I've based the accelerator around high performing professional women's needs. That said, I don't want to leave men out of the conversation either, because I do think biologically, you know, they've been prone to be these high achieving, you got to stand out, you got to be, you got to prove yourselves. And there's a lot of baggage that comes with that as well. Yeah. You know, that's such a great point because I think we run into problems in our society with hyper-masculinity as well, because men are afraid to cry and then they become overly aggressive because they're putting on an act where they think they're supposed to, and that can lead to misplaced aggression as well. 100%. I mean, we, we all wear these masks, right? Of this is how I'm supposed to show up. This is how I get value from society, from my partner, from you name it. And it's really sad. I think, you know, so much of my work is all about what's behind the mask. What's so scary about what's behind the mask? You know, a lot of the times that we are facing fears, as we mentioned initially, they were self-imposed fears. But we have to also talk about the fact that we live in a society where other people will project their fears onto you. And so I often wonder how then, it's not always easy to tune that out. Do you have any thoughts on how to drown out the naysayers and people projecting their fears onto you so that you can be successful? I am a firm believer that you get to control you. You don't get to control anything beyond the tips of your fingers, right? So when somebody comes at me and they're really angry and they're upset and they're trying to push me down, my question is, oh man, I wonder what happened to that person, right? Trying to hold a space of empathy for them, which is, listen, I can say this all day. It's really hard in the moment. Like right now I'm hanging with you, Corey, and I'm like, this is great. Life is easy. But when you get into that stressed out space, I feel it, right? My heart starts to pound when somebody comes at me with their anger or their frustration. And so noticing what that person's energy is doing to you and saying, wait a second, taking that deep, slow breath, which is super underrated, right? Because it's free to us. So we don't breathe nearly as frequently as we need to consciously taking that nice, slow breath and saying, oh, oh, this isn't about me. This is something different. It allows you to sort of gain a little bit of emotional space from that person. And again, you know, boundary setting is huge. I don't have a lot of people around me that do that because I don't choose to let them into my space. Social is a whole nother, <laughs> whole nother environment. Right? No, of course. Yeah. But you, you raise a great point. I, I just talked to a friend of mine a couple of days ago and she was always active in her church. She's a brilliant art therapist and she's an author now. And she just quit her job because she's now able to do her art therapy full time. And she's got all these great speaking engagements. And she said, you know, I had to actually remove a lot of people from my life. And I'm talking people who are like church congregants who I know and I've known for years, but they were just not aligned and supportive of my vision. And I can't have that in my space if I'm going to be productive. And so, you know, sometimes you do have to sort of, you know, leave certain people behind. It's so hard. That Jim Rohn quote, though, is is so true that you are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. Mm. So when you think about that very carefully, yeah, who, who are you surrounding yourself with? Your environment shapes you really significantly. 
So if you're surrounded by people of a scarcity mindset, people who are always pushing your buttons, you're going to stay in that stress response. And that fight, flight, freeze response is not a healthy place to, to be living. Something I know you're passionate about is the societal history of making women feel ashamed of their bodies and how media celebrates what's quote unquote, the great bodies, the hot bodies, the models, the athletes, the actresses with the six pack abs and all that. And then they make women who don't have that body feel inadequate about how they look. So you've proposed a remedy for that, which is a new and honest history that neither shames nor celebrates our bodies, but honors them by blissfully ignoring them. I'm very intrigued by that. So please share with me what you mean. I'll give you a little backstory on that. So I struggled with an eating disorder. I still struggle with an eating disorder. I, I haven't fully outgrown it, but it was really severe when I was 11 years old. 11. 11, that's so young. And it was because, you know, I recognized very early on what are women valued for? And women are valued for their beauty, for their youth, because ancestrally, that's what we're valued for, to, for making babies. Mm -hmm. And beauty is a proxy for reproductive health. So I was like, oh, oh, in order to fit in, I have to be skinny. So I, I developed a fairly severe case of anorexia nervosa and mm. um, was hospitalized for the better half of, of a year. And this is really problematic when you're thinking about an 11-year-old kid. And what this set up was this giant fear. I'm either going to be rejected by society because I, I'm going to be too fat. I'm not going to be pretty enough. I'm not going to be enough. Or I'm going to be rejected by my family and my friends because I'm vain. How do I balance this? And I feel like so many women get stuck into these tales of how do I not be vain? How do I not care what I look like, how I eat, what, how I present myself and still fit this idea of perfection, of societal perfection? And then I've seen this really interesting swing, right? Where it's kind of like this female empowerment and we're all going to be, I'm going to show you all my roles and I'm going to show you all the extra hair and all the things society says I shouldn't have. And that's really cool. And I'm going to argue it's still putting the focus on our bodies, and so to me, like the idea of just being invisible is something that is lovely. We always talk about what the females are wearing to these galas or to like, yeah, we just did it this week. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Even, but like, what are the, what mode of the men wearing? We never talk about it because it doesn't matter. Right. So the more invisible we can be in terms of how we show up, I think there's great power there. Yeah. You know, it's a strange analogy, but sort of comparison. So in New York City, every year at the LGBT Pride Parade, it can be very provocative with how the floats and how the guys are dressed. And I'm always like, well, where's the float with just the guys wearing khakis? Like, <laughs> can I find that float? I don't go to the gym that much to look like those guys. So where's the gap float, you know? But <laughs> It's just so, but it's all based on what society projects we should look like based on stereotype. And um, I think, you know, what's important about what you're saying too is that you raised a point about although the women are now sort of reclaiming, like, look at my unphotoshopped pictures, my roles, they're still sort of fishing for validation. a high five. A, yes, a validation, even with that. So it's still a perpetual cycle. This is, you know, where I want to be really careful because I think it can be easily taken the wrong way in your analogy. Be as flamboyant as you want. By all means, if that is who you are, get out there and, and do right. it. And if you want to really celebrate your body, because this is really important, great. By all means, do right. it. I, yeah. I am not you don't want to discourage. That. Right, right. My point is that really for an entire history, it's the same thing with race. Like when people say, well, why does it always have to be about race? Because it always has been. 
because we've always set up our systems around women's bodies and controlling women's bodies. Absolutely. And their race, right? Like, do you have a drop of black? Well, then you're black. Do you have a drop of Irish? Well, then you're black, right? We've changed, we've shifted the definitions over time, but it's still always been about control. And unfortunately, I think a lot of women have really taken hold of that. It's hindering us to think about other things. This is interesting too, when it comes to leadership, right? Because the question of how do you fit in as a woman to leadership? Well, the model of leadership is based on men. So wear your power suit, get really tall, get really big, intimidate, drive home. Yeah, that works. But I don't think that's the best form of leadership. I think for a long time, we've ignored this other form of leadership, which we're starting to talk about a little bit more around empathy and compassion and Mm. cooperativeness. And rather than being competitive all the time and driving only the numbers, we care about culture. We cultivate like we're the crows, right? We're working together. And I think that that form of women's leadership has been ignored for a long time. Again, going back to, but how do I fit into this model of quote unquote leadership? When 91% of the top 10 leadership books in the last 10 years are written by white men, mm-hmm. how do I fit into that definition? Yeah, yeah. Well, I have to present myself in a certain way, right? I have to show up to not be intimidating, but still be intimidating enough that they take me seriously. It's a tightrope, I can imagine. And so, yeah, I don't take that um, lightly. I know women have just, again, because society has done this sort of very schizophrenic <laughs> sort of assessment of who they should be. And so it's difficult to navigate through that. But I will say that that will bring me to my final question for you today. And I've enjoyed our conversation immensely, Rebecca. Likewise. Thank you. So I just really want to know what you think for young people, and it's not just females, although a majority of our 1.5 million members are women, like well, about 60%. So it's a good amount. But just with all we've discussed today about bringing your authentic self to the party fearlessly, what advice would you give young college students who are about to graduate or they're entering college? Because it's their first time being an adult and having to navigate all these things we're discussing. What's one or two pieces of advice you'd give? I think the biggest thing is to stop feeling like you have to be an expert. If I could go back and tell myself, hey, Beck, you don't have to prove yourself ask questions because it's the cliche, right? But like, if you ask the dumb question, you're asking the question that 12 other people in the room need to ask, want to ask. And the reality is we all have these fears. Every single person, this from the CEO down to the intern, like in any organizational structure, everybody's sitting there going, am I enough? Am I enough? And the answer is yes, you are. You're already enough. You are enough as you are. You don't have to prove yourself to anyone. So show up, be curious, ask questions, ask questions, ask questions, and stay open. That, my friends, is the best way to live a fearless life. Thank you to everyone listening today. And don't forget, you can find us everywhere you stream and download your favorite podcast. We'll see you next week on Motivational Mondays.